Emily and I met in a way that I have been lucky enough to meet a surprising amount of genuine, accomplished, and compassionate people through our dogs. My dog, Cloud, and Emily's, Kong Kong, became swift friends as Emily and I tried to get work done at a classy cafe in Los Angeles. At the time, I was focused on running my funded startup Parrot and its main division, Intern Magic, where we quickly connected as her mission as a career coach and past Fortune 500 recruiter overlapped with mine. We both wanted to help people around the world find jobs that they were actually happy in. Aside from our entrepreneurial pursuits aligning at the time, I quickly learned after hanging out with Emily that she was extremely passionate, caring, and down to earth. In this episode, we chat about career happiness, tips on being happy in your current job, and more. Renting a car has never been better because renting through Turo equals no more shuttle rides, waiting in line, or boring cars. Get the car you've always wanted. Download the app today. Welcome to the Spill the Matcha podcast, a Capitor Studios original series. I believe we often feel inspired to reach our goals and become our best self, the way we always have, through learning from a collective of experiences shared by fellow people. I will ask guests from wellness experts, thought leaders, best-selling authors, and career coaches to experience luminaries, to spill the matcha, to lay out bare their truths, advice, and opinions in an effort to bring to light informative knowledge on a variety of different topics, meant to help further you along the path to achieving what you want in life. Knowledge is power. Together, we are stronger. Your journey continues now, with us along for the ride. Emily. RJ. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank I mean, you. It just makes sense you're here. We're both matcha lovers. I know. I'm so excited to be here. The only thing that's missing is an actual matcha in our hands. Which is my fault since I did drink matcha right before the show. <laughs> like a huge gulp, giant bowl. No, I was going to say bowl, but... Mug. Mug of matcha with boba as well, too. Oh, I'm jealous. Did you not have matcha today? I did not have matcha today. My go-to is actually coffee because okay. I need caffeine. I know you think that we're both super hyper and you literally energetic people. betrayed me with your matcha coffee trade-off here. But yes, keep going. I need my coffee every morning. <laughs> Co- uh, matcha, as I mentioned earlier, I feel like is just a very zen drink that is actually a good go-to-sleep drink for me. What? Yeah. Because caffeine really doesn't do that much. Okay. That's interesting, though, because you are so high energy, right? So you're saying caffeine is not the cause of the high energy, but it also doesn't do much. I feel like it's a placebo. You know, when you okay. drink it, you're like, ooh, I have so much more energy now. But I, when I drink it at night, mm-hmm. I still go to bed like normal. Okay. It doesn't keep me up. That's crazy. Yeah. For me, if I have matcha, it will, like, it just makes me more focused mm-hmm. and it, like, gives me a little pick me up. But I mean, I would drink coffee and I'd have to drink it when I used to. Um, I have to drink at least like eight hours before bed because oh, wow. it would just give me like a really strong level of energy, um, which I loved. But of course, I can't take it anymore due to like stomach issues. So I drink my matcha 
<laughs> not TMI here. I mean, this is what the show's about. It's about <laughs> laying it all out. Okay, love laying it. Laying it bare. Um, so I know, you know, we're friends and I know your backstory, but our listeners don't. So give me a summary of, give us a summary of, you know, how you came to be and what your accomplishments are. Cool. So I am a career happiness coach and I coined that term because I really believe in helping people find happy jobs. We spend so many of our waking hours there, but yet it's crazy. There's like a Gallup poll that shares 67% of adults are not happy at work. And so I made it my commitment to help people really understand what do they want to do when they grow up and then how do they make that transition? So before all of that, I was actually really lost myself. And contrary to popular belief as a career coach, I did not have my career figured out. But I ended up navigating my way through a lot of trial and error, uh, but also I serendipitously fell into recruiting. And recruiting really opened up a whole world to me of all of the different types of jobs out there, all of the different companies that exist, the environments, and so forth. And so I ended up recruiting for a lot of really big tech companies like Google's, Facebook's, Amazon's. And also a lot of small like startups at the time, like Uber, uh, Palantir, Theranos before they went under. Yeah, yeah, but really throughout my gamut of recruiting, I just saw that the recruiting cycle was the same. Um, What led me to ultimately become a career coach is that as I was rejecting like 99% of the people and giving the one offer letter to that one lucky candidate, Um, every time I was rejecting someone, I couldn't give them the honest feedback. And I really believe that in order to improve on anything in life, you have to have honest feedback and constructive Mm -hmm. feedback. So that's essentially what um, led me to quit my corporate nine to five. And I ended up becoming a nocturnal career coach because I started traveling the world and um, primarily Europe. And during the day I would sightsee and it was perfect because at night, Everybody was like on the Pacific or East Coast, and I would just stay up and help give advice. And then that's what led me to Cultivite today. So your experience before you mentioned where you can give people like the truth mm-hmm. um, or and especially obviously constructive feedback. What like why couldn't you do that? Yeah, because in recruiting, you give a really cookie cuttered answer that says, you know, thanks for applying. We really liked you, but we found another more qualified candidate. And when you give that type of feedback to someone, you don't really have any type of argument come up because it's not like specific tangible feedback, right? Mm -hmm. So they just have to be like, okay, thanks for the update. Thanks for letting me know. Which actually, I know we were talking earlier, it's rare to get feedback, even like an update, because Mm -hmm. a lot of recruiters are just inundated these days. Um, So... I remember the first time I did give somebody honest feedback, it turned into like this open um, can of worms because I told them, you know, actually what we're really looking for is somebody with more, um, this is when I was doing a lot more like database administration recruiting. So I, I was like, we are looking for somebody with more SQL experience. And he ended up like starting to just, you know, Uh, object with our analysis. And he was like, oh, but I did this, this, this. Did you count in this project? And I have T 
taken these certifications. So that's why it's just easier to say thanks. But we went with another candidate with more experience. And I think that makes 100% sense for people who are applying to these jobs. And, you know, even if they get feedback, they need to realize that they're lucky to get feedback. And I don't mean that like, you know, oh, they should just be hyper appreciating everything that's happening to them in life, which you generally should appreciate what's happening to you in life. But more specifically, you know, recruiters, it's not their job to give you feedback if you haven't joined the company. You know, that I love the fact that nowadays, like in our HR culture, you have this message that is at least automated in the sense that they send you a message and it says like, hey, you didn't get the job, but thank you for applying, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think on their end, like you mentioned that you have in the past that you had the person you reach out to, they got kind of defensive and they started arguing with you. I feel like based on that conversation and having been in a similar position at certain times that that person was probably thinking, okay, well, maybe if I can like get this person to see my point Mm -hmm. now that they responded, they must care. And that's like a double edged sword, obviously, because you're like, no, we're moving on. But I just want to give this to help you. right? Right. And I think for him, he's probably thinking, okay, well, if I can persuade them, then I can get them to get their job. And I think for our listeners, it should be kept in mind that that may not be the actual case. Mm-hmm. Um, also, to not be defensive. Defensiveness in general is not a good trait to have, whether in business and personal life. And if that person had been more kind, they may have continued to have a connection with you later on, I'm assuming, right? Absolutely. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. Um, I think that if you're going to take any type of criticism, like really be grateful and appreciative of that and see, okay, how can I improve from here? Not necessarily, how can I go back and argue my point uh, when the door has already closed? Because they really shut the door, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the other part where you hit the nail on the head is you're absolutely right. In a recruiter's world, their job is to find the best qualified match, not necessarily give honest feedback. That's what a career coach is for. And so for any candidate out there that is expecting honest feedback, the best thing you can do is find a mentor in your life or hire a career coach because that is exactly what they're going to do. And I'm a big firm believer in hiring experts that they have really made this one topic and this one subject matter, like everything that they live, breathe, and eat. Because you would never go, for instance, to... I don't know, a hairstylist if you have a plumbing problem. (laughs) But that's what I see so many people do is um, like Facebook is so big for this. They post, people post questions, like general questions about their life and their career and they ask for advice. But it's like these people don't know anything about you and you don't know anything about this person who's answering. Like what is their credibility? What is their merit? You don't want to put something as important as your career into just anybody's hands. I agree with that. I think that also, though, I think maybe sometimes those people, not to defend them, but to play the devil's advocate, obviously, right? (laughs) Hey, you're supposed to just take what I say. I mean, I support you for almost anything you do. That's good for you. But I think that at the same time, because I've seen people do that, I think, and maybe this is like a slight age difference between our group that you're with on Facebook and my group, um, which is not a lot. Uh, But I think that, you know, for the age difference, too, is like millennials, younger, young, like the youngest of millennials, um, which I'm luckily included in, we don't post that much on Facebook like that. And I think that, you know, for us, we're not necessarily asking about, you know, advice or careers. It's more like memes and like all that content Mm. that's just constantly out there. And, you know, for us, we kind of moved on to Instagram. But I think that people are on Facebook asking that kind of stuff. It's kind of like they're they're doing Reddit or they're doing Mm -hmm. Cura. 
Cora. I, I never said Cora. Cora, yeah, which I love. But they're doing they're doing that, but on Facebook. And I've seen though, like I've I've answered people who you know I had a friend on Facebook who was asking for some career advice in my specific industry mm-hmm. that I had a relation to. And of course, they were lucky enough where I saw that post. I 100% agree that you shouldn't be taking random advice from people who are random. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, sometimes people just have things to keep in uh things that you should keep in mind that may be good advice from their own experiences. Yeah. You know? I definitely agree that it's good to get mentorship because that's what that is. And sometimes True. it is helpful to get like crowdsource basically different answers and varying topics. Good way of putting it. But I feel that a lot of people ask very like specific hypothetical like should I do this or this and Mm. it's like well I don't know the full context behind what your background is I don't know what your goals are I don't know what your values are I don't know what your mission is so it's really to me I feel it's very irresponsible to give such an answer that that person might sway but at the same time I do think a lot of people just ask questions because they already know the answer and they just want some type of validation validation. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's a 100% I think a lot of people, not 100%, but that's a lot of people, yeah. right? I mean, I think we all we all want validation at some point in our lives. And I think part of, you know, being your best self, which is what we're trying to do here for mm-hmm. our listeners and people around us and ourselves, is to, to not have to gain validation for other people, to be right. knowledgeable enough and have enough resources from your own end to be able to feel secure and valid with what you're trying to do. And build enough self-trust to really trust your own intuition that, hey, this is what I think I should do. Whether or not it's the right decision, I really believe that everything in life is kind of like a happen chance if you think about it. Mm -hmm. Um, One decision will lead to another, to another, to another, but in the end, everything's going to come full circle and work out as long as we don't give up or we don't take this obstacle or this like roadblock and just end there. A hundred percent. If you, if you give up, it, you, you give up. Yeah. <laughs> Game over. I mean, reset. And I mean, and here's the thing, like, you know, nothing is something and something is nothing. And giving up in that sense, like thinking of giving up as nothing, you're still doing something. And then the things that are around you, like you said, choice equals choice follows up with another choice and there's an action that comes with it and result, et cetera. By giving up, you're like putting yourself in a, like a negative position mm-hmm. and you're going to have make negative choices that are going to probably result in more negative mm-hmm. choices, results, and opportunities that are negative, right? Yeah. And so I think the idea is that if you at least keep trying, especially if you build your knowledge, you'll have at least the resources like mentally, intellectually, uh, to be able to try and be aware and then gain whatever you're trying to do, like be uh, get closer to achieving your goals, yeah. you know, being that better self. Um, I think this is a great transition okay. into um, our first topic. Um, before we get into our full depth discussion, I want to make sure that we discuss a topic that is related to you, but not necessarily specifically oriented towards your expertise. And I think that's because, you know, again, this podcast, uh, which is called Spill the Matcha, is all about laying bare truths, experiences, advice, but a compilation of all those and just putting it out there for us to see. I'm always proud of your friend when I hear about your success. And it's also awesome how they usually entails helping someone else. But I'm sure it couldn't have always been easy, which is a great lead into our opinion piece of this episode. Before we get into a full episode in-depth discussion related to each like guest like yourself, expertise or specific to be highlighted chair, I like for us to warm up with a thought-provoking question for us to discuss. For you, it's... What do you think it means to be an Asian American today? (laughs) Okay, I'm going to tackle this one. Let's see. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
What is it like to be an Asian American today? So I feel really proud to be a first-generation Chinese American, and I really love having representation in like the media and you know Andrew Yang is running for president which is I think our first Asian uh nominee he may be yeah yeah um which is huge like I know Obama he was like the first um black yeah he was the first African-American African-American uh president ever yeah so that was like a huge win um but Generally speaking, like if we were to think about the stereotype, Asians are really known to be very reserved, very, um, my, <laughs> they call them the model minority, right? Because there's known to be submissive and really passive and just do all the right things, like don't stir up the pot. Um, and with that, when it comes to career paths and career choices, we've always been taught to either be an engineer, a doctor, or a lawyer. Like those are always the safe routes. And my parents specifically wanted me to be a lawyer. So I think it's really cool to like live in this day and age where we are now seeing ourselves on um, Hollywood. And, you know, it's just really cool to be able to see all of the creative pursuits that people are really opening themselves up to. Because again, before it was like, your parents, like what is ingrained in you is like your parents struggled. They sacrificed a ton to get to here in America. And your goal is to live that American dream of finding a really great college, Mm -hmm. graduating, go off to grad school, get a six figure job, buy a white picket fence, you know, the American dream, quote unquote. So I think it's really cool now that a lot of Asians are kind of recognizing hey, I have a choice in what it is that I want to do. Like that is kind of the American dream is that you have freedom as well. So you get to choose where you want to go. And I remember talking to my mom um, back in the day. She was like, back in the day day, when I was in college, back in the day, um, she was basically telling me that in high school, you take one exam and that one exam determines what you major in. Like they didn't have a choice. It was basically you take you get a score and they tell you, okay, you have to study this. So for my mom, she didn't do well in math and science. So she was forced to study history. Mm. Yeah. So now I think about it and I'm like, we can choose our majors. We can choose whatever it is that we want. And, you know, it's really cool to see people even like not pursue college because they want to become a YouTuber, you know, like not just Asian Americans, but just in general, like we live in this unprecedented time where there's so many options and so many choices, but I do believe it's helpful to have somebody kind of pave that way in a sense to like show you what is possible. Yeah. I think it's interesting because I think there are a lot of parallels between you being Asian American and a female, and then me being a mixed race male. And I think, you know, for me, it's always been interesting to see you know, as, a, as a person who loves history um, and looks back a lot of it and, and looks at how the parallels between modern day as well is the experiences that people of my, people of color and minorities in general have had to go through. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that, you know, as an Asian American, like the stereotype is like your parent wants you to be a lawyer, doctor, or engineer. For, I think for most African Americans as well too, especially like middle class, or, or back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, trying to get to middle class, uh, it was the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like the lawyer doctor thing um, came from the idea that those are the most steady jobs and they make 
good money, right? right? So your first generation, when you get here, you want your kids to to have that. That's the fastest way. That's what you know, right? right? And this is before Google. This is, yeah. this is back newspaper day, right? Radio. Um, and then obviously even, even after that, into this 80s, 70s, and 80s. Um, nowadays, it's changed where for specifically like with entrepreneurship, which we both are entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. um, I think we've had, there's a stigma. Even when I started back in 2010, there was still the stigma of like, oh, you're an entrepreneur. Like, uh, you're you're like going to be a deadbeat or something, you know, in, in, that, in that realm. And I think probably, and you can speak to this as well, it's probably something you face as well too, both culturally, but then also societally. And I think that's slightly changed for for all people, at least specifically with entrepreneurship, because um, we've seen companies grow from, you know, nothing to multi-billion dollar companies like WeWork. Yeah. in which is under a lot of a lot of stress right now but you know eight billion dollars in in less than five years mm-hmm. and i think that set a precedent and, and steve jobs too i mean there was a bit older but once his story got out same thing with bill gates once there's once their stories got out it was very inspiring people said okay you can also do this right you know they had like kind of a success factor so then it's like oh this isn't so like mysterious anymore. Like this is more tangible. But I have to say my first year as an entrepreneur, nobody took me seriously in my family. Like I would be working really hard on the computer from home and they'd be <laughs> like, oh, Emily, could you take me to the airport? I'm like, what the heck? I have a job. Like yeah. I'm working. Yeah. But yeah, it's, um, I feel like with the internet, especially like for my mom's generation age-wise, it's just this very like, nebulous thing it's you know you can't touch it so it almost feels like it's intangible in a way and i and i think we've seen you 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 know we've had doctors forever Mm -hmm. you know and whatever that means from shamans all the way to the doctors as of today right and back in the 60s 50s 70s 80s 1800s even you know when i think asian americans came in flux in the 1880s if i'm not mistaken something around that mm-hmm. time or the 1910s around that or 1900s i think 1880s i think it was right. 1880s yeah. yeah and i think specifically maybe chinese uh-huh. um the came, railroads real, yeah it came mm-hmm. and even during that period you still had doctors doing really well mm-hmm. i mean we just had we had many wars and it makes sense same thing with lawyers And that's embedded into our culture where we've seen for multiple generations that these people have good lives. It's not, yes, it's difficult. It can be hard work. Um, But at the same time, it's steady and you're safe and you're educated and all of those things. And entrepreneurship has more recently become something that like everyone seems to want to get into. And I think that's a saturation level as well too with that. But more specifically, we have proof to the older generation of like, you know, the whole okay boomer thing going on. Right yeah. Now. I think we have proof of like, okay, well, no, Steve Jobs. Uh, no, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos. So you have, these are the biggest of the biggest, but then yeah. you have LinkedIn. You have all of these other startups, these businesses that did succeed. And whereas before, before like uh, the internet really, what were you going to say? Mm-hmm. Like, did you read the newspaper about Steve Jobs? <laughs> like, did you do that kind of stuff, right? right? And I think, you know, and, and, and also speaking to you as an Asian American as well, having that cultural pressure of like being a lawyer being a doctor because I know we've talked about you going to college to be a lawyer Mm -hmm. and how you did not do well in the LSAT right right? I bombed it like three times but you know what's ironic too is that I did the same thing without necessarily bombing the LSAT (laughs) okay (laughs) (laughs) I mean I didn't do great but like we both went to college like we're like both entrepreneurs heavily uh, entrepreneurship in general tech bio but then also publishing in your career related in general and then we're both we were both trying to be lawyers. Yeah. Right. My mom's a lawyer. Like my and I'm not first gen. You know, uh, as an immigrant, I'm like I don't know 
12 generations and maybe 15. Like we wow. were, my, my mom's family was here since the 1700s, brought us slaves. And wow. then my dad's side came in the very, I think in the late 1700s as well too. So we've been here forever. And luckily like my family two generations ago built up from uh, being, you know, basically poor mm -hmm. to being entrepreneurs and then using that money to pay for education for their kids. Then my grandfather was able to go to college. She went to Penn yeah. and then his kids became lawyers and doctors. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that like you're, cause you're that first gen where it's like still lawyer doctor. Yeah. And that's my previous, the previous generation. And that's what everyone is in my family. Yeah. Lawyers, doctors, judges. Right. And here I am where I'm looking around at like my cousins, myself and my cousins, and we're like entrepreneurs, stockbrokers, um, lawyer as well too. You know? <laughs> So it's interesting that you say that too, because like I said, I think there's a lot of parallels between Asian American and uh, being mixed race or, or African American. Yeah. But I think, you know, for you, you come from a different background with your parents being Chinese and Taiwanese mm -hmm. right? yeah. as well too. And, and they don't live here. Mm, they do. do they? Your mom lives here. Yeah. Your mom mm -hmm. lives here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think that a lot of it goes back to just being really highly specialized and finding something that back in the day, like others would respect you for, but now in two two what are we 2020 2019 oh almost 2020 yeah in 2019 2020 i feel that we are fortunate to do something that we actually want to do which is really rare back in the day in my opinion for sure and i think people can tell our age that we're not that old because we say back in the day <laughs> but i agree i think that's and that's what you help do and mm -hmm. that's how we that's how originally how we met as well well ironically that's how we connected after we met through our dogs yeah Right. So after Cloud and Kong Kong, you know, became good friends, which took like seconds, we connected on just helping people find jobs, which I was briefly in and you consistently keep doing, and, <laughs> which is awesome because I think you're helping a lot of people while also making good money yeah. and building your company. All right. We are going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more on Spill the Matcha. It's no surprise that millions of Americans trust AAA for more than just roadside assistance. With 24-hour access, on-the-spot AAA battery installation, and complete insurance coverage, we're right there with you every step of the way. Join AAA today. Welcome back to Spill the Matcha. This is Arjun Tolson. We're here with Emily Liu, founder of Cultivite and a masterclass level career coach. Okay, so let's talk about why there are so many people in jobs they don't enjoy and how they can start making changes toward getting a job they would be happier with. Ooh, I love this question. <laughs> Where do we start? I thought you would like this question. Yeah, that kind of piggybacks off of what we were just talking about earlier with the generational expectations. And I actually think that's how a lot of us ended up in jobs that we don't feel inspired by. Okay, so blaming everything on parents, gotcha. Yeah, you know, <laughs> the easy thing to do. No, but I really think that a lot of it stems from, one, just not having a lot of experience when we're determining our major. Isn't mm -hmm. that crazy? Like you go to high school, you take extracurriculars, you have, you know, your basic like social science classes, history, math, science. And then you get thrown into a four-year university right away, and you take more classes, but you're focused more on grades as well, mm -hmm. right? Like performing well on tests and projects, but you haven't necessarily actually been in like an on-the-job training. So 
you know, it's one thing to read about something and then it's one thing to actually do it. But a lot of us are missing the doing part. And so I think when we have this four-year time cushion to pick a major, that was my case at least. I literally changed my major so many times that I knocked on my counselor's door every single semester and was like, I think I want to be a zoologist. I think I want to be a lawyer, an accountant. Um, And she was like, okay, but if you choose this path, you're going to be a six-year senior. And it was like, I should just go to law school during that time, you know? So we think from a very practical level as well. Yeah. And I mean, that's probably something that's taught to us. And I think practicality is good when put towards a use of achieving what you want to achieve. Like, don't be so practical where you're basically like, you know what, it's impractical for me to achieve my goals because they're so hard hard to reach or it may take so much time. Mm -hmm. Right. But I think you made a good point, obviously, which is on the case of one generationally affecting uh, generations affecting how we perceive our jobs today and what we should do but even more so it sounds like you think maybe we may need like career coaches to be in place in high schools yeah um, or maybe even earlier than that definitely because one of the reasons why you're so fulfilled in your job is because you're actually Um, fulfilling your values, the key traits and characteristics that spark a lot of joy for you. Mm. But I never went through values exploration until I was in my 30s. Like those exercises never came up. And so I kept taking job after job or um, really for me, I was being very passive, like whatever jobs fell into my lap. I was like, okay, that seems cool. I'll try it out. Uh, But I never took time to actually sit down and be like, what are my values? What do I value the most? And now as a career coach, I've done these exercises. So I know I really value community, creativity, um, freedom, adventure, and fun. Like those are my top five values. Mm -hmm. So everything that I do in my business and in my day-to-day, like that's what I'm looking for. If I can infuse like community, like that's why I have a Facebook group. If I can infuse um, creativity in what I'm doing, that's when I get really fulfilled and I feel like a sense of satisfaction this reminds me so much of like on on the dating side of love languages mm-hmm. it's like you're taking your love languages converting and, and the equivalent of like your I guess career aspirational yeah. language mm-hmm. and then converting that into this is what I should be doing or this is what would make me happy right um, which I think is incredible because most people don't know exactly what you just said I certainly didn't yeah um, even at 26 now and from any time period before I didn't necessarily know you know what my language was in that mm-hmm. sense but I at least knew I was lucky enough to know okay I'm really happy doing this thing and that's kind of all I do is whatever makes me happy from yeah. the get-go whereas I think most people think of it in a practical sense like oh this job is offering me 10k more let me take that job exactly you know and what do you think people should be doing to find a job that they're happy with that they also can actually make money with too yeah that's a great question so I'm in, there's like two separate camps. There's one that's like, don't follow your passions. Like you're never going to make money. And then there's the other that's like, do what you love and the money will come. And I'm actually in the latter camp. Like I really believe that if you do what you love, you'll find ways to monetize that. Like I always think about people who eat cheese or, you know, they do mukbang on YouTube and they're just doing what they love, which is eating. Mm -hmm. And they make like $20,000 a month, some of them, you know, which is crazy. I mean, I guess you have to have a talent there too. So here's the thing is you have to have like the strengths, like what are you good at? Like you mentioned, but also what do you love doing? Um, If you can really sit down and reflect on those cross intersections, you're going to get really clear on the different career paths that will allow you to do that. And then you can take in the 
uh, I guess, practical component of it. Because if you, for instance, love helping children, but you want to get paid $100,000, maybe you're not a social worker, but you're a professor or, you know, director director um, of a children's foundation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But the other thing I want to mention is that I really believe that we are human beings rather than human doings. And I think a lot of us are focused more on like, what is it that we do rather than what is it that we want to, how do we want to show up? Mm -hmm. Like, what is it that we're being? So I I think that because we're so multi-talented, multi-passionate, we could really do all these, all of these different things. Like, for one, I know I could be a real estate agent. I could be a barista. Like, there's so many things that I'm capable of doing. But which ones of those would allow me to be how I want to express myself on a day to day? So, would you? So, I, I love that, and I think for me, mine is my the way I live my life is more focused on the legacy part of it, and then also because yours is almost like present day, mm-hmm. and the way I focus on my life is almost like future and past tense. Mm-hmm. So, mine is legacy, meaning obviously once you die, what you're leaving behind, yeah. and then the future is what do you want to achieve? What are your goals? What are your dreams? And how do you get there? Right. And I think you need the present to make yourself that person, to help yourself be that person to get to that future, mm-hmm. which then leaves behind the legacy you want. Mm-hmm. Right. So I feel like those are interconnected. And when yeah. it comes to jobs, you know, the whole Joker thing where you can, or jester thing where you can be a master of multiple trades, but what is it? Master of none? Master of none. Um, Oh my gosh, what is that phrase? Is it Jack of all trades? Jack of all trades, master, master of, of none. none. I, I, you know, there are people in the world where they're going to be good at a lot of things that you're just going to actively be seeing. And I think personally, and I'm surrounded by people, including yourself, that are like that. And I think those people who came up with that phrase are usually talking about, are usually jealous, to be honest, of mm-hmm. those people. Now, here's the case. Um, when, like you said, you could be a barista, you could be a, I don't know, you could be a CEO, you could be a dog walker, whatever you want to do, and you may find passions and hobbies. You only have so much time, mm-hmm. right? So right. I think the combination is finding what you said, which is being being present and trying to uh, find a job that helps you express who you want to be. Yeah. And that will make you happy. Right. And I think that when you're expressing yourself in the moment, like as you're doing the things that you love, you're going to start to focus more on that one thing and get so good at it that it becomes your craft. Because I really believe that with the way our um, careers are evolving, you you have to be specialized. Otherwise, you're just going to be outsourced or AI is going to take over your job. That's so true. Yeah. So I really think it's important for people to, because here's the thing is a lot of people feel that it's hard to focus on one thing because they want to do so many things. But as you mentioned, like we only have so much time, like time is finite, right? And so it's not so much how can I do everything all at once? But what is that one thing that I just want to really prioritize and focus on and make that my next focus? And I think a, a cool way of putting a twist on that too, though, is, and this is this is what's helped me be successful as well, is taking what you said and then going, okay, well, what if I really, you know, when someone asks you a question, like, what are your, what's your favorite book or what's your favorite movie? And you're like, I can't choose between these two. Mm-hmm. Well, if you can't choose between two things you really love doing that you could be making money from, mm-hmm. why not try to combine the two? Mm-hmm. And yeah. that in itself is much harder to do than said. But once you can do that, you have companies like WeWork, for example. WeWork is a real estate company that is acting like a tech company. Mm-hmm. But the idea is that they combined co-working spaces with providing services and a bunch of other functions that include. So from beer or kombucha to ping pong and then also just 
active, productive networking and workspaces, right? Mm -hmm. And for you as well, too, I'm sure there's something where you could eventually combine with Cultivite, uh, HR, helping, coaching, etc., with something else that you do as well. I'm going to do personal finance. Really? Coaching, yeah. And I love that because I feel that it's so many of us are stuck with the or. It's like this or that, mm -hmm. but it really could be an and. It's always like, what is the option C? And that's actually a really good point because when you can kind of have the and, that's your differentiator. Like that's your niche that you carve out for yourself and yeah. that's what separates you from the pack. Definitely. And I think if you can find, I mean, we're already at the core of basically like, okay, well, if you can get to this awareness of, okay, you know, I don't necessarily have to be a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer. Um, you can focus on trying to find your, not necessarily a niche, I would say, you know, and, and, and correct me if you think something differently, but uh, I would say that you focus on, okay, I have this passion or I have something. Can I make money from this? And if mm -hmm. I can't, can I figure out a way to make money from this? Mm -hmm. And if eventually you can, you talk to mentors, it doesn't seem viable, then go to your next passion. See if there's something there. Yeah. Right? And if you can do it for both or multiple, figure out ways to find parallels between them and combine them. I mean, that's that's a lot of businesses, but I think part of it is that culturally um, we're taught to have this one focus. Right. Like with that phrase we mentioned with jack of all trades master of none. Right. And you were talking about how people can express themselves through their careers, which I don't think I've really ever heard before, which I think is awesome. Mm. Do you think most people think of careers like that though? No, we're taught to be very pragmatic thinkers, right? It's like, this is what we do. Um, you do that from like nine to five and then you clock in, clock out and you're somebody else like on the weekends, yep. right? Um, but I think that's why like everybody's always talking about work-life balance. And the one phrase that I'm really starting to adopt is work-life integration because I don't really think it's kind of like a light switch you turn on and off. You should be finding something that allows you to be your best version of yourself both in and out of work. And it's oh, kind of I like more that. of like a fluid thing than just like this abrupt, okay, here's where I draw the line, right? Here's my boundaries. Yes. And it's, I've, I've always, I've never understood. I mean, probably because I've really never worked like a normal nine to five job. <laughs> Luckily, um, you know, having, having started out as an entrepreneur and being able to build up my business and use that to then get really solid jobs that, you know, fit my personality and my skill set. I was lucky um, and I worked hard, but I, I, because of that, I never understood why, you know, you go to a company and you, and people would talk about like, oh, I have work friends versus normal friends. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing I love about when you're an entrepreneur and when you're surrounded by people, creators, um, startup founders, etc., who are in love with what they're doing, they have this passion, yeah. right? They, they love it. They don't go home and just go, oh, nine to five. Right. right. And you take breaks. It's not like, oh, you're working all the time, which actively Sometimes. we generally are, especially when you're founders <laughs> of companies. Of right. course, you have to do all these trades and et cetera. But, you know, for people, when you have employees and they're at these companies where they actually really like what they're doing and they enjoy it and they're happy, mm -hmm. you know, they don't go home and go like, oh, I, I don't want to talk about this. Mm -hmm. But I, I've been surrounded, whether it's at family functions with like, let's say, 40 family members. And I, I mean, I came back when I was like 22 and I would you know, be like, oh, what do you do? Because I'd be like, oh, now I'm an adult. I actually care about what you do. I think about <laughs> it. You know, you're a family member. I never thought about what you do, right? Yeah. It's not just a doctor or lawyer. And they're like, oh, I fill in the blank. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, they don't sound happy. Right. Okay, they don't want to talk about it. Let's move on. And that's not just family, at least for me. That's also just like a majority of people I meet 
um, who are outside of, of, of startup, the startup world in general or entrepreneurial space or mm-hmm. creative space or entertainment, right? And I think what we need to do is figure out ways to help people change that, which is what you're doing, Yeah, you know, as well. Definitely. And I would say that when you're an entrepreneur, you have a lot more like creativity and flexibility. Like you have a lot more freedom in your schedule. If you don't like to do something, you outsource it, right? So I definitely agree with you on that. But I also think that in the corporate world, you're given these like list of roles and responsibilities that are built into your position. So it's not as easy as per se, like being a entrepreneur who is like, oh, I don't like sales, so I'm just going to outsource that out or I'm going to hire somebody to do that part. Um, A lot of the times when we're climbing up our corporate ladder, we kind of have to quote unquote pay our dues. And then we get to the next level and hopefully we get to like the director level where we can start to outsource certain things Mm -hmm. to other team members. Um, So all that being said, I want to emphasize for anyone who is listening right now that is a corporate professional to just look at this as like a journey of collecting different skill sets because not like I always say as a career coach, no job is perfect. There's never going to be the perfect role. Even as an entrepreneur, there's like ups and downs. There's things that we would rather take away from our plate. But as we're going through this like um, career journey, I think it's important to just take everything as a learning opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I always look at my worst jobs as like my best worst jobs. I'm like, I'm so thankful and grateful for those opportunities because there's always lessons learned. There's always information that like informs us of what we want versus don't want. So going back to your original question of like, why are so many people unhappy? I think as we start to take even the worst jobs, we start to get clarity of, okay, I hated this job, but why, right? I think a lot of us aren't willing to go to that next level of questioning. It's just like, I hate my job. What else is going to come up like along this path of mine versus really analyzing, okay, I really love the team collaboration. How can I find roles that have more team collaboration focused, right? 100%. And I think part of it though, I I honestly feel like the biggest challenge people face is, you know, these are, what we're talking about are practical steps, which I think is using uh, experience with emotions as well too, which is is the way you have to do it as a human. Mm -hmm. But I think part of what, stops people from even getting to the point that we're talking about, which I think is honestly even harder for, let's just say the average nine to five worker, the average person is overcoming maybe a fear Mm -hmm. of, of stability, stability. And you probably can talk to this because you had those stable jobs um, that were more nine to five and and, and, in that realm. And people I've noticed are just, it's very difficult for them to face this fear. And for yes. me, I all I, I never got the chance, I guess, to say like I had to face this fear, maybe because I just always thought in, in let's say new quote unquote, that I just was going to do something yeah. and it wasn't going to be nine to five. And I never even tried to do nine to five. Right. Um, I worked in my dad's office for one summer when I was like 16. It was awesome. I was the, you know, uh, the son of the boss and so I wasn't treated like a normal employee I already knew like I was like this is not for me mm-hmm. you know and when I came out of that I had let's say I made like two grand that summer as like a, my dad just I didn't even know I was gonna get that money gave it to me awesome and I was like okay well I know I'm good at business because I helped him you know start charging late fees that he <laughs> was owed um, I was assertive I dealt with stuff but I was still polite I fixed customer service I fixed the tech software stuff also I was like okay I know I'm good at this so far, but I still don't want to do like a dentist office, which is what my dad wanted me to do, right? Right. So I never really took that fear. And because I never, sorry, I never had to really deal with that fear. And because of that, 
I just habitually don't look at it, I think, in the same way other people do. Yeah. How do you propose that people get to this point we're talking about where they've already passed the fear? I mean, your, your husband yeah. just recently did that, yeah. right? I love this question. And as a career coach who's really coached over 500 people these past couple of years, um, I have to say that fear is the one thing that holds people back the most. And it's all inside of us. Um, you're wired a little bit differently, I think. <laughs> but um, even then, like I feel that I have had the level of success that I've had because I haven't allowed fear to control me either. You know, I think it's almost like ignorance is kind of bliss in a sense. And one exercise I do on myself a lot is what if I couldn't even entertain this thought about like, what's the worst case scenario? Like, Mm -hmm. what if I was just so ignorant and going into this, just thinking so optimistically of like, what is the best thing that could happen? And I would say for anybody who wants to do something different, but they're afraid of like taking that leap, it's just asking yourself What's the best thing that could happen? Because again, fear is always focused on the worst Mm -hmm. and the worst is always like a hypothetical. But what if it were something amazing, right? And then it's really just going back to figuring out, okay, how can I have the self-efficacy to move past whatever the worst case scenario might be, right? Like that's what life is really about and that's what career is really about. It's just taking everything step by step and knowing that you're going to move past this because we're all problem solvers. Like we're all creative, we're all resourceful, but we have to be presented with some of these negative situations to tap into that. Right. And I think, I think part of it, I think that whatever I've seen, this is the most challenging thing. Like I know people who really want to write books and then people want to get out of their, you know, waiter jobs and they're actors and they want to do these things. And yet they, and they'll tell me, because part of it, I think as people who have maybe already done this, we tend to think, oh, well, they just need like a little bit of inspiration. Or maybe if they have this piece of knowledge, they will understand like, oh, I can, this is all I need to do. Let me just do it. Yeah. And what I've seen is that, no, like with Google, with social media, with everything now, YouTube, it's not that they need necessarily like these like six tips anymore. Right. It's that they are missing some sort of catalyst. At least that's how I feel about yeah. it and think this catalyst to push past this fear or these distractions mm-hmm. to whether it's video games, whatever it's going to be, excuses for yourself, which is again, fear-based to get to that point we're talking about, which is, you know, Hey, now, now that I know I'm ready to do this, whatever this means, which mm-hmm. is following your passions, this is how I do it, which we've talked about. Yeah. But I think one big thing, like we've said that people face, like the average person faces is just making that leap of yeah. a faith. Um, you know, with yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I always use the phrase like procrastination is just um, another phrase or synonym for fear. Mm -hmm. Like that's all it is, is whenever we're afraid to take action, it's because we're just thinking about what's the worst thing that's going to happen. Yeah. And I think sometimes we, you know, I think all of us at some point probably procrastinate with something. We're like, oh, I wish I had done this. And I mean, I think 90% of the time of what we're talking about, it's going to be fear-based. Oh, yeah. And I, and I think that sometimes, you know, even the best of us procrastinate. I mean, I yeah. certainly do sometimes, oh, yeah. right? Or you're just not interested. In yeah. which case, that's a sign, too. Or like, I mean, even I, like for me personally, I will be, let's say, I just want to do something else. And I still want to do the other thing. But I decided for, for whatever dumb reason, this is a priority right now. Mm-hmm. And I look back, I'm like, okay, I regret that, right? But that's learning lessons for us. And again, yeah. but you have to, to, to have all of this, you have to get past, I think, that point of fear, right. which is okay, I can actually be happy and successful mm-hmm. in a career that isn't just what I've been taught 
by people who don't know anything probably really about what it means to be happy in a career, which right. is back to that generational aspect of like, they're just telling you this because that's all they know. Right, right. That's right. naivete, right? So um, back to what we're talking about, I think this is this is a fantastic conversation I think people really should think about. <laughs> and really I think ponder you, it. <laughs> ponder. I mean, seriously, though, I, you know, I think we've talked about some great stuff. Um, but I love this conversation. I think it's something that needs to be discussed more. We'll be right back again after this quick break. Welcome back to Spill the Matcha. I'm RJ Tolson. Before we wrap up, we need to hit our random curious question of the day. Knowledge truly is power, something we've actually discussed multiple times throughout this episode, and something I think we both can relate to continuously. And the more of it you have, the more resources you have to apply to whatever you are trying to do in life. So the random curious question of this episode is, how are police dogs compensated? Ooh. <laughs> so you want me to predict what Cora's answer is? Um, you take a shot. Yeah. Why do I have to go first? Okay, I'll go first if you want. I mean, you're the guest trying to be polite here. You go first. Well, I think they're compensated with treats, I'm going to say. Uh, I don't I don't necessarily think the dog itself is paid, only because I'm, I'm thinking of it as, I know, or I don't know, but I think the trainers, there's like the canine unit or something like that, and I think the trainers are the ones who own the dogs. Like, they adopt them, they own them, and they stay with them. So it's more like their property which I hate saying about any living creature. Um, but I think they're just property, so they don't get paid for using their property in the line of duty. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Am I able to have the same answer? Because that's exactly what I was thinking. But let me elaborate <laughs> okay. so it doesn't sound like I plagiarized. So cough, cough. <laughs> <laughs> I do believe that the only currency for dogs that they would really care about is either treats or belly rubs Mm -hmm. and so you know you can't give them a w2 or pay stub right like the only thing that they really would care about is that so well i mean they're owners though like do you think that they which is super cute what you just said but do you think like okay i gotcha (laughs) i see yeah i would say that if they're taking on this responsibility i do know for a fact that canine dogs um are pets of the police officers because you're right they train them they board them Mm -hmm. that i don't know if you've taken um your dogs to or your dog to uh day doggy daycare in downtown la it's expensive it's like 50 dollars for one night of dog boarding i've taken like i've been to PetSmart, for example and i've taken him in their hotel Mm -hmm. i think that's also like 30 40 dollars but yeah so I would say that because the owner has to do that and they have to pay for its food, mm-hmm. you know, True. they have oh, to I eat see. a lot given that they are like, you know, on the run and they're yep. doing a lot of fitness. Yep. So I'm going to say that at least 50 times 30, which is like 1500 plus food plus training classes reimbursement plus Possibly like a stipend for them to actually uh, train them. Okay. 
So, so a lot. I would say like at least 3,000, 4,000 additional a month. Yeah, a month. Okay. So let's, let's read the verdict. Okay. <laughs> Fun fact. They do not require pay as their expenses, food, shelter, medical care, medical care uh, are all provided by the department. So mm. technically what you said was like half true, yeah. although there's no such thing as a half truth. But uh, I think you were on a better point than I was because uh, I guess if you count then the department paying for all of these facilities, it can be they're getting paid in a sense for it, but they're not mm-hmm. taking anything home. So right. it's more like it's an expense It's not card. an out-of-pocket. It's yeah. kind of like child support or foster care system. Okay. You know, like the foster care system, they give – you get like the food stamps or all of the things to help take care of the child. So uh, you're not paying out-of-pocket. Gotcha. But – you all, but they also do get like additional monthly I get a stipend, income. I thought. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought they get a stipend as well too. Um, it says the handler may get some additional pay to cover any incidental expenses, as the dog usually lives with the handler. The dogs, however, do get rewarded. They get to be happy from being with their owners, which we both kind of said, but especially you. Yes, emotional support. Uh, it's fun for them. They get to smell things all the time. They get taken care of as solid pets. They say nice things to them. They play with them. So it sounds like a pretty good deal. They get a lot of exercise. Yeah. Um, and the department just pays for everything. Yeah. And German shepherds are the smartest dogs. So I think that if they have continuous like learning and development, mm-hmm. that's like really the best form of payment for them. So we're cycling back that even for dogs, knowledge is power. Exactly. Wow, that went full circle. We are just full circle today. Well, Emily, thank you again for joining us on this episode of Spill the Matra. I truly believe that conversations are a way for us to connect person to person and share our experience in a way that can really motivate and move people. Thank you. I'm excited. This was fun. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So where can everyone find you? I'm Cultivite everywhere. Mm -hmm. Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram. Do you want to spell that? Okay, you know what? I just bought the domain because I didn't realize there was something called a radio test. I've been on several podcasts where they kept butchering Cultivite. You did amazing. Um, So because people can't pronounce it or spell it, I actually bought the domain cultivateyourcareer.com. Just because it's called it's called Tivite, right? It's actually like Vite, like the resume. Yeah. Right. So it was a play on words for curriculum Vite, but then I wanted. I like love play on words, so I said cultivate your life. Mm-hmm. So it was like cultivate, but cultivate. And I think it's awesome. It makes sense with your branding, which is like the little seed plant. Mm-hmm. Not seed, but the yeah, uh, the emoji. The emoji, yeah. The sprout. Which I think the sprout. There we go. Mm-hmm. Which I think is awesome. Um, I enjoy the topics we discussed, and this has just been awesome, as it usually is with you. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Spill the Matcha with me, RJ Tolson. Find me on Instagram and Twitter at RJ Tolson. Spill the Matcha is a Capritor Studios original podcast in partnership with The Tomorrow Company. The show is executive produced by myself and produced by Kevin E. Wood. Download the Burst Out app today and check out all of our original shows and podcasts.